Hi. All right, would you, uh, would you pray with me as we get rolling? Father, thank you for this night. Thank you uh, for this place. Thank you for the people who are gathered here. Thank you that you love us and you want better for us than we want for ourselves. Remind us of that. Uh, remind us of who you are and all that you've done for us. And we ask that as we open your word and read it together and study it a little bit, we ask that you'll help me uh, to get out of the way, uh, that you'll help us to stay out of our own way, uh, that you'll reveal our hearts to us, that you'll reveal yourself to us, and that you'll draw us, and you'll woo us, and you'll change us from that place. Um, don't allow any of us to leave this space tonight the same. We believe that you can do that. We trust that you will. We love you. We praise your name. And it's in the name of Jesus we do pray. Amen. Okay, uh, I've missed you guys. <laughs> that was not a plead for attention, I promise. <laughs> uh, but I, I really do. I thoroughly enjoy this place. Uh, I care about the ministry that goes on here. I care about the people that uh, come in and out of this building and beyond on a week-to-week -week basis. Um, and so far as I know, uh, there isn't a formal sermon series going on these days, uh, so I've just been thinking and, and praying for you all. Um, and, and somewhere in this process, this sermon came out. And uh, here's a fun fact about preaching, uh, for those of you who haven't done it before. Uh, Preaching is a weird deal, and you can go to a place and, and you can preach with even some regularity uh, and, and seek to faithfully preach the Word of God every time, but it takes, uh, and I'm just being honest with you from my experience, it takes a while to begin to truly understand uh, the, the heartbeat and the DNA of uh, a local church and then be able to preach specifically to that group. That just, it takes time. Uh, so uh, I've been uh, preaching here periodically for I don't know how long, two, three years, something like that. And it's only been in this last season of, of life where I felt like the sermons have been more targeted toward the heart and DNA of scum. Right? And so, just so you know, as you're praying for a pastor, uh, whether it's an interim or a lead pastor, whatever that looks like moving forward, be praying for this process, for the, the opening of God's word, and as they share, that, that, that God will, that the Holy Spirit will empower them with uh, just unique insight into the DNA of scum and, and, and your people here, because that takes time. But that's where this sermon is coming from. Uh, so this sermon is pretty uniquely targeted. Uh, the, the, the crosshairs are on you guys, and so I'm sorry for that. Uh, and at the same time, I'm happy about it. Uh, the, uh, it's called Death and Glory, which should ring a couple of bells uh, as we uh, start to get into it. Uh, but uh, let's start here. When the first missionaries, uh, uh, certainly of the last uh, few centuries, when the first missionaries were allowed into Japan in roughly the mid-15, it was roughly 1550, 50, 1549, somewhere in there, when missionaries were allowed in and were allowed to uh, start preaching the gospel and were allowed to start proclaiming the faith to uh, Japanese, uh, they, the church grew fairly quickly. 
Within uh, about 30, 35 years, the church had grown to tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. It's a little bit hard to know the exact statistics. But the church was growing rapidly, and that growth in Japan was happening despite, despite opposition from Buddhist priests and, and other local rulers who weren't as into it uh, for several, I mean, for obvious reasons, uh, right? They're losing a little bit of influence. Uh, the, 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 this new uh, seemingly, although this is a, a, a misnomer, but this new seemingly European perspective and religion was sweeping through on the ground in the lives of the Japanese. Uh, and so again, people in power were not pleased with it. Uh, and so one particular example, and I apologize, my Japanese is not good. Uh, so the names that I'm going to try to pronounce may be wrong in my pronunciation. Uh, but one of the powerful local leaders, his name was Toyotomi Hideyoshi, uh, he began to persecute these priests uh, because he didn't like the influence that he was losing. He began to persecute them uh, pretty broadly. They started to kill Christians. They started to pursue them. And so uh, the priests that survived... Uh, went into hiding and started to dress like the local Japanese and were trying to find ways to continue to preach the gospel. Well, during that same window, a gentleman was born. Uh, his name was Paul Miki, born in a town that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. And he was born in the early 1560s. So this is before persecution fully kicked in. Uh, and his parents were wealthy, and so he was given this Catholic Jesuit education because uh, that's where the best education was. And he completed his schooling. He was a talented preacher, uh, was, was headed into the priesthood over the course of time. Well, he was one of 26, uh, 26 men that years later, in his, uh, in his 20s, was gathered up. And they were forced to walk uh, a little bit more than 300 miles in the winter. Uh, they were forced to walk all the way, essentially, to their death over snow and ice, etc. And all along the way, this group of 26 Christian leaders uh, was just singing hymns and preaching to anybody who came to see the spectacle. Uh, it was really a fascinating deal. And in, at the beginning of February, they had marched them all these hundreds of miles, and they had set up 26 crosses on a hill. And they tied all 26 of these people to those crosses, and even then, they continued to sing and to preach, much to the dismay of the persecutors. And Paul Miki took the opportunity, hung, hanging on the cross, to project out to everybody who had come to see this, he said this to everyone there, he said, having arrived at this moment of my existence, I believe that no one of you thinks I want to hide the truth. That is why I declare to you that there is no other way of salvation than the one followed by Christians, since this way teaches me to forgive my enemies and all who have offended me. I willingly forgive the king and all those who have desired my death. And I pray that they will obtain the desire of Christian baptism. Right? Out of that proclamation, a whole bunch of the other people on the cross started to proclaim their faith as well. And a bunch of the gatherers started to worship and proclaim God in that space. And then they were all 
killed. They were thrust through with lances, and they were all killed. And Christianity was largely stifled at that point. Well, fast forward uh, a few hundred years, and that stifling ended, and Japan opened it kind of back up, and they said Christianity is allowed uh, to, to be proclaimed. And in that process, missionaries started to go back into Japan, and they found thousands of Christians that were still meeting in secret and worshiping and engaging with the gospel. There is a consistent idea that can be found throughout redemptive history, throughout all of time, that is ultimately rooted in the gospel itself. And we're going to take a close look at it uh, tonight. The idea, and you're going to hear me say it several times, that idea is that new life, fulfilled life, joyful life, the life that we're all looking for, new life begins with death. New life begins with death, right? So we're going to pick it up in Ephesians, uh, starting in chapter 2. I'm going to give you a little bit of context uh, before we start reading. Uh, Ephesus was a weird place. Uh, so that's where uh, Paul's writing this letter to a group of churches in a kind of a unique city. The, the city is generally fascinated with magic and the occult. Uh, we know that that's true, uh, and it helps to explain Paul's emphasis on God's power over all things uh, and Jesus' triumphant ascension. You know, it, it explains some of the themes that he enters into. But generally speaking, there's not a specific occasion or a problem that inspires this letter like some of Paul's other letters. Um, and, and so where we're going to pick it up, we're going to pick it up at the beginning of uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Paul has just, just done the welcome. He said, hey guys, uh, I'm thankful for you. I'm praying for you. Uh, and it's, it's longer than that. But he's just done his welcome and his thanksgiving. And then he dives into general theological ideas. He's laying the foundation for where the letter goes as a whole. And that's the part uh, that we're going to focus on uh, is right at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. Okay? Uh, so this is the Apostle Paul talking. And he says this. Yeah, read along with me. It's up there on the board. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, that's a great beginning to a sentence. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. And here's the famous coffee cup verses. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Okay, so we're going to break down that big idea that I already mentioned, uh, and we're going to look at it in, in the context of these verses. And again, the, the, the idea is that new life starts with death. New life starts with death. So I'm going to go back. I'm going to just uh, go through these verses generally. Uh, if you, uh, here's the first two verses again. Read it. Read it in light of your life. Read it in light of your experience. Paul's saying, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The state of the human heart, every single human heart is dead apart from God. And this is so, so significant because every person in this room right now either was at one time spiritually dead or is currently spiritually dead. That's true of every person in here. So let's unpack that a little bit more. When you were conceived by your parents, you were designed as an integrated human person made of body and soul. Those two things are interconnected. You aren't a a soul with a body. You aren't a body with a soul. You are both. You are body and soul. And here's the reality. Both your body and your soul were marred. They were negatively impacted. They were altered by sin. And we understand this principally uh, when we think about our bodies. Right? Because we all eventually die physically. We grow older and uglier and gravity wins and we gain weight and we lose our hair. And like, we just know, we know instinctively that, that this is true bodily, that our body is marred by the curse of the world, that we don't last forever. We degrade. And that's also true of our minds. Our brains don't always work as they ought to. The same basic principle, though a little bit different, can be applied to your soul, your spiritual self. From the moment you were conceived, your soul, the spirit that you are, your soul had a defect. It was twisted and bent toward evil because of sin. All right, so we're born broken. And again, we know this instinctively, and there were a lot of kids in the room, and you never have to teach a child the word mine. Somewhere, they just learn it, and they know what it means, and they speak it with conviction. This is mine. Right? We're born broken and bent. Our spiritual life is defective. Right? We're still a soul, So we will still often have spiritual experiences or inclinations, but we don't want what we were designed to have, which is a relationship with God. And we see Paul describing exactly that in these couple of verses. We see him say, hey, your spirit, your soul, the part of you that that is intangible, that part of you is going to be bent toward, it says it, the passions of our flesh, right? It's bent toward the world. It's bent toward the whims of Satan. Our spirit still exists, still works, but it's not functioning in the way that brings us fullness of life, right? And again, this should ring true for many of us 
but let's bounce to verse 4. We get this, so that's the, that's the picture, and then we see this exception, this change, this significant conjunction. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Right? So we're spiritually dead. Our souls are bent away from God, but God. Right? The situation is bleak. We have no interest in him, but God. Right? We weren't all that we could be or should be or were designed to be but God. And for many people in this room, this is our story. This is my story. Our lives were going a particular way away from God, but God. Right? Because, it says right there, because he loves us and wants better for us than we want for ourselves, he entered into that darkness. He, entered, he, he pursued after you as you were walking away from him, sprinting away from him in reality. He entered into that space and created a way by which we could no longer be dead, by which we could be given spiritual new life. We can be made alive. We can experience life in the way that we were meant to. We can experience God in the way that we were meant to, in relationship and in order for that to happen, Jesus had to die the way that we deserved to die. So as we're walking, bent away from God, not wanting anything from him or about him, we deserved wrath. We deserved nothing, really, in reality. We deserved only consequences from God. But God came down and died the way that we deserved. New life begins with death. Jesus took on that punishment and death so that we could have life, and then he conquers death. That's the beauty of the resurrection. The resurrection is the power by which we're granted new life. If Jesus stayed in the grave, if Jesus hadn't been risen from the dead, we would also still be dead. But through the resurrection, God claims power over death and uses that power to give new resurrected life to his children. You hear it when you see, if you've ever seen somebody get baptized in a church, you hear it there, raised to walk in newness of life, right? You die, and that's it's representative of you dying with Christ and being raised with him with this new life. My favorite verse in the whole Bible, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but Christ lives in me. Right, so our new life is purchased by Jesus' death and the death of our old self with him. So new life, your new life, can only be purchased with the death of your old self. So what does it look like? What, is, what does new life end up looking like? He describes it in verse 8. It's the famous one. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing, it's a gift. So that new life looks like my old self dying, I'm repenting, I'm turning from that, and I've got this new holistic trust in Jesus, in who he is, in what he's done, and we're given new spiritual life. New life begins with death, always. And that, again, is many of our stories. But that 
is not why I was convicted to preach this sermon. Though it's true. Everything I just said is beginning with death is God's way of working in the lives of individuals. This is my story. I could just tell you the specifics of how he did it. But it's not just how God works in individual stories. It is also God's way of working on a grander, more corporate scale in the lives of his church. No, and this is good news, no individual ministry or church will last forever. And it's a beautiful thing. Because often, new life begins with death. And so I'll talk about my church for a minute, the church that I currently work at. Uh, a little over a year ago, many of you know this, I've, I've talked about this before, but uh, bear with me. A little over a year ago, our lead pastor uh, got the boot for a moral failure. Uh, and in that space, my role at that church obviously changed quite a bit. Uh, so I've done a, a whole lot of preaching over there. I've, done, I've led the majority of the meetings with our elders, which is the equivalent of the council here. And so leading those meetings uh, for quite a while. And one of the things, I'm on record, you can bring in any of our elders, and they will say that this is something I have said to them. One of the things I am on record with there that I told them in the aftermath of the situation with our pastor, and have continued to remind them of this, is that our church probably does not have very good odds to survive. And I'm, I'm just being honest with you as I say that. If I were a betting man, which I'm not, but if I were, I would likely bet that we won't survive another five years unless some pretty significant things happen at our church. But, and I've said this to all of our elders, even if Faith Church, that's the church I work at, even if Faith Church doesn't make it, that doesn't mean that God won't be done working in our community. And that's really significant. In fact, I'd argue that God would probably take a remnant from Faith Church and build something new and beautiful in our neighborhood. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to pray for and work for changes to see new life at our church. We are, we have been, we will continue to be, and I believe that God's going to bring new life there. But it does put some things into perspective for our leaders. God is not in any way, even though, so Scum's been around for roughly 20 years and has had a significant influence in downtown Denver and beyond. God's used uh, Scum's in, uh, platform globally even. Faith Church, 50, 60 years ago, and, and for about 30 years there, was the premier church in the Denver metro area. Right, so this isn't a no-name, low-influence church that's going to die. This is a church that was once the biggest church in Denver through which God was saving a lot of people. God is not dependent on faith church. He's not dependent upon scum. But he will build his kingdom. He will bring new life. So here's what I'm hoping you'll take from that. As ministry continues here, as discipleship continues here, and I hope and pray that I get to continue to play a small part in it because I really do have a deep affection for this church, I hope that you will feel a little bit of encouragement and freedom because God can bring new life from anywhere. 
out of death comes new life. And I also hope that you'll feel some conviction from the Holy Spirit because God doesn't need scum to continue his kingdom work. He doesn't need the church's name. He doesn't need the church's vision. So, hold this place, this beautiful place that I love so dearly. Hold this place with open hands. Don't ever cling too tightly to this individual church to not take part in the life that God is bringing about. And it's the same message of the story that I began with. No amount of persecution or threats can stop God bringing about new life. In fact, God often steps directly into those kinds of places to bring and build new life. Take the current global situation of Christianity. The places globally where Christianity is exploding right now is in places that in recent history, there's been deep and dark oppression. China. The gospel's exploding in China, much against the whims and desires of the government. Same with the Middle East. Yeah, same with the Middle East. The gospel's exploding, largely starting through dreams that God's then revealing his word and the gospel and changing people's lives out of a place where Christianity does not have a voice in recent history. This is how God tends to work. New life begins with death. And the good news in that is that it continues with an additional promise in verse 10. He says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, where death happens, the death of Jesus, the death of our old self, right? The death of whatever, where God can bring new life. We become spiritually alive in Jesus, but it, but it doesn't stop there. The work is just getting going. Once we have new life through faith, we then begin to function as we were designed to function. This is where the fulfillment comes from. This is where we gain our sense of meaning and our sense of purpose. And part of what it looks like is doing the good work that he made us to do. Uh, that is to say, we are designed to bring about true good in the world. It goes back to the creation account, where, where God says to Adam and Eve, go cultivate the earth, go make things, go engage, go design, go be my image in and around this planet that I have gifted to you. Right? It's, it goes all the way back to the beginning. We are designed to bring about true good in the world and bringing about good and beauty and truth uh, has two primary manifestations in our lives. First, the first primary manifestation of that good is spiritual fruit, right? It's the soul part of us that begins to live and breathe as it was meant to. And an example of that uh, comes from the book of Galatians. You've probably heard this before. It says this, but the fruit of the Spirit, so where the Spirit has breathed new life into a person, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Right? So to bring about good in the world, it, that's what it looks like. It's allowing the Holy Spirit to change us. And make us more like Jesus. To not continue in our old ways. The old ways that we allowed to die with Jesus on the cross. 
we allow those, those same desires, those issues, we allow those things to die. And we let the Holy Spirit breathe and bring new life. And the primary way to tell on this one is with the passage of time. So like, I moved to Denver five years ago, a little over five years ago, and you shouldn't have asked me to preach then, and you didn't, so good job. I was a different guy then than I am now. God is bringing about these fruits in me over time, and certainly 10 years ago and 15 years ago. I mean, I am a starkly different person by the power of Holy Spirit, and the same, hopefully, is, is true for you. Hopefully you can look back and see that. So that's the first manifestation of goodness, bringing about goodness in the world, is spiritual fruit. The, the second one, uh, which is right in our text in verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. It likens back to Psalm 139, where the psalmist says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Right? God designed you, God designed you uniquely to be in relationship with him and worship him and glorify him so you're free to go and do that with excellence. So here's what that means in practice. If you're an artist, go make beautiful art. This is a part of how God wired you. If you make music, go make beautiful music. If you're in business, go cultivate. Go build new ideas. Go change the way we think about stuff. If you make sandwiches, go make great sandwiches. Right? If you're a spouse, love and pursue your spouse. If you're a parent, raise and love your children. If you're a friend, be a supportive and accountable friend. If you're a neighbor, which we all are, if you're a neighbor, pursue and love your neighbors, especially those in need, especially those that the, that the scriptures would call the least of these, especially the ones for whom God has a distinctive heart, the poor and the needy, the naked, the orphan. God has wired you for his beautiful purposes. So take freedom and go be who he's made you to be in relationship with him. And this is the result of that new life. This is the promise associated with new life. So where we've died to our old selves, we've been granted this new life in Jesus through his spirit. This is how we begin to function. This is what the life of a Christian begins to look like. And it's this idea uh, where we're going to land the plane. I'm going to keep it a little bit shorter tonight. Scum, once again, these ideas ring true on an individual and on a corporate front. New life starts with death, and God builds that new life in us. And if you are, and I've heard this, I've heard this from the mouths of the people in this room. If you're praying for new life here, right, if you want clarity on where God is taking scum, if your desire is to see God at work through this church, it starts with dying to ourselves and allowing him to build it. 
The new life won't happen if we're clinging to our understanding and our preferences and our name and our culture and the things that we've built. That new life won't happen if we're holding on too tightly to God's gifts. So what does it look like? Hold this place, your role, this, the name of this place, and even these people. Hold them with open hands. Hold them with open hands. Allow God to do and change and breathe new life into this room, into this neighborhood, into the people that are here. Because if we cling too tightly, I could, I'm speaking for Faith Church and myself, if we cling too tightly in his generosity, he'll kill it so he can bring new life. He will allow death to happen in order to bring the new life that he's trying to build. So hold this place and its people with open hands. And let's see what God will do. I'll tell you what, I'm amped about it. I love seeing God work, and I love the stories of the people that I know from this church, and I'm excited to see what it's going to look like. And I hope to continue to play a small role. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you once again uh, that you love us enough to be honest, that you love us enough to, uh, to encourage us to let go and, and let you to, and allow you to build the things that you desire to build. Don't, please protect us from ourselves. Please protect us from our own instincts and our own preferences and our, our visions. God, we want to see your vision become a reality. We want to see you build new life here. We want to see you save people and woo and draw people. And we believe that you can use the people in this room to do that. You've done it historically. We believe you can do it again. So Holy Spirit, we ask now that you'll continue to help us to worship, that you'll help us to love each other truly, not just in ways that feel good, not just in ways that affirm uh, the things that I've been thinking or somebody's been thinking, but to truly and holistically love each other as you love us. God, we want to see Denver transformed by the gospel, and we believe that you've got a place for scum in that kingdom-building effort. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.